This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. to discuss some new Wharton research about customer lifetime value and company valuation. Here to talk with us is Wharton marketing professor Peter Fader. Pete, thanks for being here. Always a pleasure, Rachel. And Wharton doctoral student Dan McCarthy. Dan, welcome back. Yep, thank you very much for having me. So, Pete, first of all, could you give us a quick summary of your research? Now, this is a bit of a follow-up from something you'd done previously where you looked at company valuation of companies that have customers that, that buy subscriptions. And this is a little bit different. So could you tell us a little about that old research and then how you're building upon it in this research? Sure. Well, there's no such thing as old research here. This is all brand new. Right. Uh, this, this idea of customer-based corporate valuation. It's actually a concept that's been floating around. Uh, but Dan and I are taking it very, very seriously. And we want to bring just, just a tremendous amount of, of rigor and breadth to it. In the previous work, we looked uh, purely on the contractual or the subscription-based side. So if a company uh, knows when a customer is leaving, it's kind of easy to, pu- to project uh, what the rest of their life is going to be, and, and the payments tend to be kind of steady. But most businesses are what we call non-contractual, which is the, the, you're just buying things on occasion, and then there's a long hiatus between them. And, and if you think about this is the kind of behavior you have with, with a retailer or with a travel firm or even pharmaceuticals or media consumption, most businesses are non-contractual. And that makes it much more difficult to uh, understand who's doing what and to project it into the future. So a big part of what we're doing here is trying to take this this broader concept of customer-based corporate valuation but make it uh, just as palatable in the non-contractual setting as it has been in the contractual subscription-based one. And Dan, do you have anything to add? Yeah, no, that's uh, it's exactly right. I'd say one of the key challenges in this work is uh, really the, the data that we need to be able to perform this estimation and then project forward you know, how many purchases customers are going to make and how much they're going to spend on each of those purchases. So again, we want these methodologies to be as broadly applicable as possible. The vantage point of this work is really someone who's on the outside looking in. And so maybe it's a a shareholder, a hedge fund, private equity firm, uh, any number of financial institutions that are kind of every day looking at the public markets and trying to say, do I want to buy this company? Do I want to sell this company? And those, those, those people, they don't have access to the internal transaction logs of the company. And what they have access to are usually the sort of information that a company would put in its quarterly or its annual filings. And so basically, we went at this problem by saying, imagine that a company was to disclose a certain very small set of common customer metrics. What are the ones that would really enable us to be able to perform this uh, first estimation procedure for the various uh, model components and use those to project forward uh, eventually what total revenues are going to be? Great. And Dan, tell me a little bit now, Once you've, how did you figure out what those were and then what did you do with them? <laughs> Yes, yeah, so we figured it out by doing a large-scale simulation analysis. So kind of the step one was saying, this is a set of metrics that we think could be usable. And really, they needed to kind of satisfy two main criteria. The first is that they're actually used by companies. So we found many metrics that essentially we have found public companies that are using them and disclosing them regularly. And then the second criteria is really that they actually help inform our model. And so the way that we answered that was we said, imagine that I was to generate 
data from all of these different possible types of worlds, you know, basically any different type of non-contractual company, and just let these metrics kind of duke it out. So we took every possible collection of this set and said, imagine that I only got to see those metrics. Let me try to predict the future and then essentially see which combinations of metrics kind of percolate to the top. Pete, anything to add? Absolutely. I think it makes sense to talk about the metrics themselves. So uh, as, as Dan said, we've done a lot of scraping of financial statements, uh, listening to CEO conference calls, seeing what uh, third-party firms are saying about the size and nature of customer bases, and we came up with six metrics. So metric number one, the, the most common one that a lot of companies will report, is what we call active users. So how many people have made a transaction, used our product or service sometime within the, the trailing 12 months? Number two is what we call heavy active users. So how many people have made a repeat purchase, have engaged with us at least twice over that uh, trailing 12 months? Number three would be this idea of a forward repeat rate. Uh, of all the people who made a transaction with us back in 2015, how many came back and did it again sometime in 2016? The, uh, the, the uh, fourth and fifth would be kind of the flip side of that. So of all the purchases that we had today, uh, what percent of them uh, are from customers uh, who did something with us in the previous year? And that one we can either do on a customer-by-customer -customer basis, of all the customers who bought with us, what percent were with us previously, or of all the orders that were placed with us this year, what percent of them are by customers who bought previously. And then last, and least reported, is the idea of frequency. Of all the customers who have done anything with us in the past year, how many things did they do? How many purchases did they make? Or so on. So that's the big six. And as Dan said, we went into it without a, a really strong sense of which one or ones would win out. Uh, but it was really interesting to do this grand bake-off across lots of different worlds, as you said, and to see there actually were some very strong, consistent results. So, Pete, when you did when you did this bake-off, what, what, what was the winning? What was the winning metric here? What was what are some of the conclusions that you were able to make from this? Sure. It, it, of course, it's it's always uh, uh, easy in hindsight, and I'm 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 kind of stalling right now because I, I want our listeners and viewers to think that among the six metrics that I just listed, uh, if you had to pick, say, two of them, which ones would, would bubble up to the top and would give you the ability, as Dan said, to, uh, to kind of uncover the repeat buying pattern as if you had the granular data at your fingertips. Well, it turns out that far and away the number one metric is the least commonly reported one that I mentioned, which is frequency. So if you can tell us among the people who did anything, how many things did they do on average? Uh, that Now, by itself, any one metric isn't going to get you far. But if you take that frequency metric and you combine it with any of the other five, it doesn't even matter. Frequency plus anything gives you really good predictive capability. Uh, just uh, winning by a nose among the five was the first one I mentioned, uh, just active users. So if you can say, here's the number of people who have done anything with, with us, and here's the average number of things that they've done, you take that one one-two punch, and it's remarkable uh, how well you can uh, uncover future purchasing and then benefit from all the, the, the other good things that you can do uh, with those insights. Dan, anything to add? Yeah, I think that really sums it up. I'd say one thing that was a bit surprising was the fact that when we went from two metrics to three, there was virtually no improvement in our ability to predict future purchases. It really, the bulk of the, the benefit that we got was by moving from kind of the best single metric to the best pair. 
And what was almost、uh, equally interesting was you can't have too much of a good thing. So, as we kind of kept that process going, you know, what's the best quartet? What's the best combination of five? That we went, when we went from the best combination of five to the best combination of six, performance actually got slightly worse and it got a, a bit more variable from scenario to scenario. And so, actually, You know, sometimes less is better. So I think it was kind of an interesting example of Occam's razor、uh, with the data. So, Dan, tell me if now, if I'm a company or I'm a customer, I'm anyone that might be interested in this sort of data, what's the best way to take your findings and apply them in the real world?、Uh, really, I would just demand that companies disclose these metrics. I think、uh, emphasizing you know, both to the company itself and perhaps even to regulators whose you know, responsibility it is to ensure that investors have the information that they need to you know, kind of make informed investment decisions. We're basically saying that these metrics are really informative. So I think it'd be wonderful to just kind of speak up and get people to disclose the metrics. On the back end, we have this you know, fairly complex、uh, estimation technique that's needed to really kind of take that scattered bunch of、uh, customer metrics and be able to kind of map it down to the underlying parameters of these models that we have for how customers are acquired over time. How many purchases they make and the spend associated with each of the purchases, so there is some you know some math involved and some heav- heavier duty computation than we saw, you know, say in the subscription based paper, but it is certainly quite doable. And I think as these method methodologies kind of take hold,、uh, we'll see them you know be kind of made more readily available. Pete, do you have anything to add? And also, I guess I'm curious, like, do companies have reasons not to release this data?、Oh, I mean, is there a reason、sure. why they wouldn't want to? And how do you get over that? So first, let's talk about some of the other benefits. Then we could talk about some some of those strategic aspects as well. So、uh, obviously, the motivation here is customer-based corporate valuation. So can the investor make more informed decisions about the? Current and future health of a company's customer base, and therefore the value of the enterprise. But it can be useful in other ways as well. So this could be a great source of competitive intelligence. So, given that these metrics are not that hard to get, say from a third-party firm or from a, a company's first-party disclosures, you can start to see、uh, uh, rival companies playing this game about、uh, other competitors in the same sector to understand where they stand. Not just in terms of overall sales. In terms of the nature of the customer base, so so we think that there'll be quite an imperative、uh, to be reporting these things not only out of some kind of fiduciary responsibility, but for for some of the, these kind of、uh, competitive activities as well, which goes directly to the the other part of your question,、uh, this idea of should there be some sense of when you disclose which kinds of metrics? Right now, it seems kind of haphazard. There are some companies that disclose some metrics all the time. Others that do it never. There seems to be no logic as to why certain companies do or don't, and which ones they disclose. There are some companies out there that just、uh, just boast about disclosing metrics, maybe because it makes them look a little bit more rigorous or sciency. But no one ever looks at these things and can really make heads or tails out of them or map them back to actual or, or projected future revenues. So we want to see much more. Uh, uh, Um, smarts about who discloses what when,、uh, and and maybe co- companies would then start to say, so are they revealing these metrics now because、uh, they're, they're trying to signal something, or or maybe they're going to stop revealing them because they're trying to hide something. So there's going to be this whole chess match about who discloses what when. 
that'll be kind of interesting when we get to that point. Right now, it's just so early on that if companies are doing this as all, it really seems like it's more kind of the CEO's ego as much as any kind of real information value. We want to see just, again, much more uh, rigor and discipline about uh, who's disclosing what, when, and why. Now, Pete, do you feel like this is going to become, people are going to become more interested in doing this and more interested in talking about it as there becomes more of this realization that maybe you're not saying everything there is to say about a company by just disclosing its financials, that there is this other element there that may have nothing to do with earnings or revenue, at least not for that quarter. That, that's right. So uh, for, for many companies, they, they, they go to Wall Street on a quarterly basis, uh, and, and Wall Street's kind of looking at them saying, your earnings aren't up to snuff, but they say, you know what? We're investing in the customers. Well, so far, it's just been a trust me. But now we can provide definitive proof. So now investors can say, is that, if that's really true, then show us these two metrics so that we can make that assessment for ourselves. So I want the, the companies to be more forthright about it. I want investors to demand it. I want competitors to be kind of curious, regulators, as, as Dan said. I just want just a more active conversation about this, this concept of, of customer-based corporate valuation. I think it's in, in everyone's best interest. And of course, I'm a marketing professor. I think that if we can establish that there's something here, then it will also trickle down through the rest of the organization as well and start to impact other kinds of decisions that the company's going to be making. I think, I'd say the one other thing I would, I would add to that, it's a very legitimate concern that some companies would have that you know, as soon as they start disclosing these metrics that you know, there's some sort of negative you know, repercussion from that. And I think there's been some very interesting recent work that was just put out in one of the top marketing journals by a colleague of ours, uh, Bern Sciarra, that basically came to the conclusion that when companies disclose forward-looking metrics, it really helps investors make more accurate projections of revenues, thus lowering their kind of perception of the uncertainty about what's, what's to come in the future. Mm -hmm. And that actually can help uh, increase the valuation of firms. And so all else being equal, disclosing forward-looking metrics can actually be beneficial to the stock price. So, so it can help just kind of overcome some of those concerns that companies might have. So, Dan, do you feel like that there are other misperceptions that might this research might dispel? Uh, I'd say, yeah, for one, just the, the competitive concerns. You know, we're showing that these metrics can be uh, actually very helpful for projecting what will happen in the future. Um, I'd mentioned the one about you know, kind of too much of a good thing, but I'd say another kind of spin on that would be just the overwhelming uh, kind of influence of quality over quantity. That it's uh, it's an, an extremely important uh, it's extremely important to have the right combination of metrics, and oftentimes having a, a very small set of very good metrics can be much more beneficial than having kind of the wrong set of. of of very you know, numerous metrics. So in that large-scale simulation analysis, we actually found that if you gave us the right set of two metrics, it could do much better than another set of five metrics. So that, that kind of surprised me. Um, in terms of misconceptions, I'd say the, the final one that comes to mind is, up until this point, most people have been using customer metrics as kind of a dashboard, that every month or every week, the company will have a, a spreadsheet that's sent out to the organization, and it's got this long list of all these different customer metrics and how each of them has gotten better or worse over time. And usually people are looking at each of these different metrics as kind of, you know, in its own world, you know, that essentially if it went up, it must be good. If it went down, it must be bad, and let's figure out why. 
here we're kind of saying we don't just need to look at these metrics kind of on a standalone basis. They're not ends unto themselves. You know, essentially, we can be able to kind of tie them up and summarize the you know, kind of effect of you know, what happened over the past week or month on the overall valuation of the firm uh, by kind of putting them all together and weaving them into this integrated model. Now, Pete, I guess anything from you, but also like, do you feel like cust- the companies that don't operate on a subscription model, do you feel like there was the perception out there that maybe they, they couldn't do something like this, that that was just for the subscription-based businesses of the world and it's not for us? Do you think this dispels that? If that's- Well, it does dispel that, but actually it was a worse problem that there were a lot of, of these kinds of non-contraction, non-subscription firms out there, and they would just kind of make metrics up to make it seem like they could use some of these subscription-oriented approaches. So, for instance, in the subscription world, you have a formal retention rate. Mm -hmm. You know, of all the people who had a subscription with this last period, how many of them renewed? You know whether they did it or not. There is no equivalent metric in the non-contractual world. There's no way that you that you kind of actively raise your hand, or or worse yet, if you're not present, if you don't make a purchase, if I didn't buy anything from Amazon in the past 12 months, doesn't mean that I'm gone as a customer. just means that I'm a light buyer. So what a lot of non-contractual firms were doing is they would take some of these metrics, like the one I mentioned before, the forward retention, the forward repeat rate. Among all people bought in 2015, how many also bought in 2016? And they say, you know what? That's kind of like a retention rate. Let's just treat it that way and then pretend that we're a subscription company. Well, that's just wrong. Uh, and, and not only is it conceptually incorrect, but if you were to follow it all the way through, and some of the earlier published research showed this, that your ability to assess the overall value of the customer base is going to be way, way, way off. And the diagnostics that you get around it uh, would be off as well. Which takes me back to the, the other part of your question. One of the other benefits of doing all this is to create credibility for the marketing organization. If we can say, here are the really meaningful metrics, and here's the way that we can tie them together to make statements about valuation, instead of having these things being little trophies on a shelf where the rest of the organization, say the people in the CFO's office, would say, that's nice. Let the marketers play with their toys. If we can show the CFO and, again, other folks through the organization that these metrics can actually help with day-to-day operational decisions as well as bona fide long-run strategy, it's going to cast the entire marketing organization under a very different light. And to me personally, getting that kind of respect, getting that kind of common language is more important than taking some of these valuation models and trying to find a a, a little bargain here or there as as a hedge fund might do. They're both interesting. They're both important. But for me, it's that that common language and respect for marketing that's number one. Now, Pete, can you tell me what's next for this research? Where are you, where are you going to go from here? Well, right now we're just establishing the, these, the, the basic methods. Like here are the metrics you'd want to use. Here's the way you tie them together to get the overall valuation. But it starts to lead to all kinds of other questions, including some that we've already touched on, this idea of so strategically what kinds of metrics should I disclose when. But I really should defer to Dan McCarthy because this is his dissertation work, and he's been thinking of, of a, a lot of other uh, different directions to take it that will be part of what he does when he graduates from here and becomes a professor uh, uh, down at Emory. So, so Dan, uh, you tell us what's next. Yeah, so in terms of the boxes that have already been checked, you know, we kind of think of it along a few different dimensions. You know, what's the sort of data that we have? You know, who's performing the exercise? What is the goal? And what's the type of firm? And right now, we've primarily focused on uh, external stakeholders, you know, like the shareholders of the private equity firms or the hedge funds, who are 
their goal is really to, to make an accurate estimate of how much the value of the firm should be. And we've done that for both contractual and for non-contractual firms. So in terms of where we go from here, I'd say one of the big questions is, can we move beyond uh, measurement? Imagine that I'm inside the company. Is there anything else that I might want to do? So maybe we can be able to kind of manage value, not just measure it, and uh, kind of part and parcel with that will be using internal data as opposed to external data. And so that'd be one example. Another is, in both a subscription-based valuation paper and a non-subscription valuation paper, we were kind of only looking at one company at a time. Yeah, so whether it was Dish Network, Sirius XM, or this apparel retailer in, in the current paper, uh, we didn't really focus on any, any competitive effects or anything like that. So I think an, an interesting area of future work would be, imagine that we had multiple companies in the same industry. You know, could we learn something you know, that we wouldn't have learned about uh, if we were looking at each of the companies individually, make better predictions, or just learn about competitive effects? So I think the sky is the limit. You know, we're just really scratching the surface and you know, very excited to, to see where we can go from here. Pete and Dan, thanks so much for being here with us again. Always great to talk with you, Rachel. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much for having us. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.